Have you ever wondered what the worst job in the world is? Many have undertaken to compile a list of the worst jobs ever, and maybe you're thinking, yeah, my job is the worst job ever. And I did some looking around, and I found some pretty bad ones. And these are real. How would you like to be a nuclear warhead sensitivity technician? Testing the sensitivity of nuclear warheads. Or how about a circus elephant cleanup specialist? There's one. This, of course, made the list, and I kid you not, these are real. Shark baiter. How'd you like to bait sharks? Here's shark shark. Here's shark shark. The assistant to the boss's nephew is always a fun one. I like this one a lot. The vice president of screen door sales, North Pole Division. That would be a bummer. Director of Public Relations, Chernobyl Nuclear Facility. How'd you like that one? How about a hurricane photographer or a roadkill removal crew? Here's one that I thought was pretty funny. Um, that, and I thought, really? Is this really a job? And it is. The Prison Glee Club President. <laughs> My all-time favorite, though, of the list was a burnt potato chip picker. What, what that means is that you stand there by the, by the conveyor belt of potato chips as they come by, and if there's a burnt one, you grab it, and you pluck it out. I don't know if you get to eat it, but you get to pluck it. All of us can probably think of a job that we wouldn't want, or maybe you've had different jobs where you're glad you don't have it anymore now that you're comfortably seated in the chair you are. That job that's most frustrating and difficult, and of all the jobs that were listed, I couldn't find one that to me would be the worst Of all possible jobs that I could think of, the most unrewarding and unfulfilling job I could think of being in isn't messy, isn't stinky, but it's a Hallmark love card writer for men. Now, men, you know what I'm talking about. You go into Hallmark, and you look around for the cards, and you try to find something for your wife, something that's appropriate, and you look around, and you pull up one that says, uh, okay, honey, sorry, this year I've been a real jerk, but next year I promise... Or you pull up another one that says, uh, this year I'm going to do better. Or I know that I'm not really around, but sorry. Um, guys, are you north and south on this? Have you had the same problem? I remember last Valentine's Day going through the, going through the Hallmark store and, and there were all these messy, uh, you know, when the guys have pilfered through there, there's all these messy cards and, and none of them say anything worth giving to your wife, nothing substantial. And all the guys were kind of lamenting the fact that they couldn't find anything worthy of giving to their wives. And I, and I think how frustrating it would be to, to, to work for Hallmark or, or to any card company who produces these kinds of cards and to sit there and to try to write about something of which you know nothing. To try to communicate to an audience and a consumer who don't even understand the very essence of what you're trying to communicate. To try to write down and give to people who give to their spouses something they don't embody or don't know is pretty frustrating. And so year after year after year, not only trying to be clever and creative and witty and trying to, you know, say something beyond, you know, I'm lucky I got you, these people are frustrated. And I think the reason that I wouldn't want that job uh, is because I wouldn't want to work around a bunch of grouchy people because they couldn't figure it out. And I think the reason of that is that our world has so belittled and so betrayed what true love is. If you ask anybody and take a random sampling, what is true and biblical love, you will find something that is devalued. You have to redefine it for them. Uh, When you talk of love, people think of chocolate. They think of sex. They think of something other than true commitment, true devotion. Open your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, I want to talk to you about the height of human achievement. The fulfillment of all of the scripture We've been doing a study on the law, the law of God, and Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 34 through 40, talked about the greatest commandment. He says the first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. If you embody that, you've got the whole law wrapped up. You've got the whole thing. And when you get to the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church to ground them and to establish them in all that they would need to know to live faithful and effective Christian lives. Everything that they would need, in case Paul never made it, he says, is in this letter. The letter contains the gospel. It tells about man's need for righteousness and God's provision through Christ. It shows that the gospel is not only able to credit your bankrupt account with the very righteousness of Jesus and to forgive all of your sins, but to perform a transforming work in your life so that you would become more into the image of Christ. 
Romans is a book about the grace of God alive and at work in the heart of a believer. And in this section, when we get to chapter 12, Paul has just finished 11 triumphant chapters of doctrine on salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, and now turns from doctrine to practice. And the point that I want you to see as you go through the book of Romans is that if you really understand who God is, and you really understand the work of Christ in your life, you will be forever changed. And in chapter 12 through 16, the apostle Paul shows us what that looks like. And we read these words in chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless you. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The passage that we're reading this morning hangs on the very first phrase, the first line of the entire section in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. You know this term, love. It's the Greek word agape, which refers to an unswerving devotion of commitment that doesn't depend on anybody but you. It depends on your choice and your willingness to love. It's the love of sacrifice. It's the love of commitment. It's the love of selfless service. And it's a love that was embodied on Jesus Christ when he was in the cross. It is a love that Paul says is to be without hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy, without hypocrisy, literally means to be genuine, to be sincere, to be unhypocritical. That's one of my favorites. Unfeigned, or here's another one, without false appearance. Your love is to be without false appearance. It speaks of the quality of love which is real and distinct. It's not counterfeit. It's a love that doesn't depend on anything but the willingness of the lover to love. Now the opposite of this would be hypocritical love. A love that is not real. A love that pretends to love but inwardly doesn't. A hypocrite is somebody who peers one way on the outside but it's another way on the inside. Or to say it another way, a hypocrite is an actor or an actress. You act like you love so that you can get what you want and gratify self-love. It's a love that says, I forgive you, but brings up past offenses when the time is right to exploit a vulnerability. It's one that says, I will serve you, but stops when that service isn't returned or appropriately appreciated. It says, I'll love you if you're on time, but not if you're late. It's a love that says, oh, I'm thankful for you, but curses and belittles you when they don't get their way. That's hypocritical love. And in short, when hypocritical love is unmasked, it is self-love. It is self-love. A love that beckons two people to fall in love with one. We're going to parachute into this text in Romans chapter 12 this morning and look at these verses. But before we do, you have to understand that so much, in fact, all of the scriptures, according to Romans 13, 8 through 10, hang on your ability to apply verse 9 to 21. Would you like to have something, some sort of key that would unlock the scriptures for you? Some sort of ability to understand the whole counsel of God? If you get verse 9 to 21 right, you've got it. You've got it. Everything else is just application. This supplies the love one another part. And if you want to understand the way that the construction is set up here in the Greek, let love be without hypocrisy, sort of like a children's puzzle border. Uh, You could sort of put that border all the way around the text. It's sort of, uh, to say it another way, you could put a colon right after let love be without hypocrisy because everything that follows explains what that looks like. It's like the border of a children's puzzle and each phrase is like a piece that fills in to give you the portrait of what true Christ-like biblical love is. 
And we could spend, we could break this puzzle into a thousand pieces this morning. But time won't allow us to do that. In this passage, Paul assembles seven pieces of unhypocritical love so that you might see and savor what are the contours of the fulfillment of God's law. And if you can fit these seven pieces into your life, you can know the fullness of what it means to be like Christ. What does love look like? How does it fit together? Number one, love with purity. If you want to be an unhypocritical, real, genuine, sincere lover, love with purity. Look back down at verse nine. Love, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. The word abhor there means to hate violently, to hate aggressively, to loathe, to avoid. And what's ironic about Paul's statement is as soon as he describes love, he says, love hates. That's right. Love has a mean streak against anything that is not good. If it is not good, love hates it. It says love abhors or hates what is evil, that which is morally bad or worthless, whatever is opposed to pleasing God or what is ever opposed to the upbuilding of another person, it hates. I think it's interesting that the nuance of the word evil here talks about evil fruit. If you have evil in your heart, you will bring forth bad fruit, evil fruit. And I find it also interesting that the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 says that the fruit of the Spirit, what? Is love. And all the rest of the fruit that follow unpack what that term love means. And so when you see let love be without hypocrisy, you see a call to hate bad fruit in your life first and then in the lives of other people. This is what the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Instead of clinging to what is evil, the apostle says we are to cling, verse 9, to what is good. I love this word cling. It's a word picture. It literally means to stick to like glue. That's the word. To glue yourself to what is good. To hold on, to fasten yourself, to unite or to join. It speaks of an intimate clinging or a welcoming. In Matthew 19, Jesus uses this word to talk about a man being joined together with his wife. It's an intimacy. It's a welcoming that good should be the thing that is the closest friend in your life, according to this passage. That which is by internal quality, morally good, and seen by good works. So if you're a biblical lover, you have to develop purity. You have to hate evil. Somebody says to you, I love you, but they want to compromise your purity. They do not love you. They hate you. Hypocrites love themselves. Hypocrites use people to gratify themselves. And if you're going to love biblically, you need to love with purity. Number two, you need to love with passion. You need to love with passion. Or if you want a different word, affection. Love with passion. Look back down at the text in verse 10. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. I just want to stop here for just a second. This is, this is talking about family love. This is talking about the love that exists within this room here this morning, among the people who know and believe the truth of people of like and precious faith. That word brotherly love, uh, you've, you're familiar with this term, Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. They get that from this word, this Greek word. It talks about the love between brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a love that exists of affection in this room that we share those who know Christ and call God Father. Many times this word has translated the love of the brethren, as in 1 Thessalonians 4.9 and Hebrews 13.1. The point is this, if there's somebody in this room who's been joined to the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore put in this body, you are to love them with a passionate and affectionate love. Philadelphia contains the Greek word philos, which is a, a brotherly kindness and affection. And then he uses a word, be devoted. It's, it's a great word in the Greek. It, it, philos storge is the word. Philos, the brotherly kindness love, and storge, emotional, affectionate love. Paul weds those two terms and joins them together and commands you to love the people in the body with affection, with devotion. It means to be very affectionate and express lavish emotions of appreciation for people in the body. It means to like one another. People who say bitter things like, I'll love him, but I won't like him, violate this command. This is a command to show affection, to have affectionate love 
not to get something out of that person, but in order to build them up. The church should be a place where the redeemed people of God are welcoming and valuing and appreciating and affirming and cherishing one another. And you say, but I'm not an emotional person. Repent! It's a command! When was the last time that you ached to be with the people of God? When's the last time you found somebody to cry with or found somebody to laugh with? That's a, that's a command coming in verse 15, to laugh and cry with people, to show emotion. We're to be tender-hearted, to tear away the calluses off of our stony hearts and to enjoy the fullness of what body life really means with affection. And you may not be an affectionate person, but you can work on it. And you can grow to obey this command. Your affections don't have to look like my affections. But your affections have to reflect what God is doing in your life. We get so formal and we get so restrained in our pews and we choke out affection. We need to long for the people of God to get enthusiasm and joy back into the body and into our relationships. This is a love with passion. As much as this love is passion and affection, it's equally passionate in service. And that's why the Apostle Paul adds a third piece that reveals how we're to love. Number three, love with preference. Love with preference. Verse 10, after he says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, he says, give preference to one another in honor. I love this one. It literally says in the Greek, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, when's the last time you heard about a fight over that one? You ever seen a couple fighting over who can serve each other first? That doesn't happen very often. That doesn't come up in the counseling office before. A a competition almost, as it were. Everybody in the body and everybody in these relationships seem to always struggle. And when conflict arises, they fight for number one. They fight for first place. The Apostle Paul says, do the opposite. Fight for the lowly spot. Fight to serve first. Fight to show that person honor, literally to, to, value, to value them, to esteem them, to appreciate them, to recognize who they are in the body of Christ, not because of the, your recognizing of them benefits you, but because it builds them up. This is basin and the towel theology. You know what I mean by that? Basin and the towel. Do you fight to grab the basin and the towel to serve? Turn over in your Bibles to John chapter 13. I want to show you this. I want to show you this from the life of our Lord Jesus. How true love bends to serve. True love fights to show affection and to serve when nobody else is willing to serve. John chapter 13. A life-changing chapter. This is the Lord's last night before he's betrayed. Then the morning before he's about to show the greatest demonstration of this love ever by hanging on a cross as our substitute. And it says in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own, this is agape, this is the word used by Paul, having unhypocritical love for his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That little phrase at the end, to the end, means to the max. To the fullest capacity of his ability to love, he loved them. And what ensues in the following verses is the description of that. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. You say, what's going on here? The way that dinner was arranged, uh, you would recline at dinner. And oftentimes your head would be at the feet of somebody else. And they didn't have Nike Airs or, you know, paved streets. They had sandals. And so when you walked around in the world, your feet got dirty. And so if you come into dinner and you're looking at your dinner and you're looking at somebody's muddy feet, you're probably going to lose your appetite. And so it was the role of a servant to come and to wipe down. As you walked in, they wiped down your feet. They took the basin and and filled it with water and then the towel and they dipped it in. They wiped you off and they cleaned you off so that you were fit for dinner. But see, there's no servant in the upper room because Jesus wanted to be alone with the 12 disciples. He didn't want to disclose the location to anybody except two of his disciples because he didn't want anybody breaking in, namely Judas who would bring the whole Roman cohort. So they're all there. They're there that night and Jesus is... Looking around, and all the disciples, Luke tells us, are fighting for who's greatest. 
Jesus is speaking of, of his triumph into Jerusalem, and he's speaking of his, of his victory, and they think that it's a, a victory parade, and they don't understand that it means the cross, and so they're all saying, well, I'm going to get the right hand and then the left hand, and all the way through, the disciples were fighting about this. And so nobody wanted to do the role of a servant. No, they, that, that basin and the towel sat in the corner untouched. And Jesus, looking around, seeing the hearts of these self-lovers, takes off his outer garment, goes over, picks up the towel, puts it around his waist, and takes the water and comes to the disciples to wash their feet, to do the work that none of them were willing to do. And so, verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I, what I do, Peter, you don't understand, but you'll understand afterward. In other words, Peter, just be quiet. Um, and just watch. So Peter said, oh, never shall you wash my feet. In, in other words, he caught the contrast here. Lord, what are you doing taking on the role of a servant? What are you doing with the basin and towel? That's the, that's the low menial job. Why would you do that? You don't do that to me. And so Jesus replies to him in verse 8, if I don't wash you, Peter, you have no part with me. And so verse 9, he says, okay, well then give me a bath. And what's very interesting here is that as you looked around the room, Jesus was doing the very thing that Paul in Romans 12 is speaking of. Unhypocritical, love to the end, love to the max service. He was preferring them. Every single one of those disciples should have been on their face washing his feet. But they were concerned only with themselves. Let me tell you something. In that room, nobody questioned who the greatest or the leader was. Everybody knew because he was leading by his love and his service. And he says in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said, do you know what I've done to you? Do you know what I've done to you? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You ought to have this kind of love and this kind of service for each other. Whatever love demands, you do this and you fight for this. Go back to Romans 12. You say, okay, what does this look like? How about you race home to see if you can be the first one to do the dishes? There's a fight. How about you be the one to pick where your spouse wants to go to lunch instead of them saying, well, where do you want to go? Well, I don't know. You pick. And then they say something, you're like, oh, anywhere but there. And then they pick something else. Oh, no, no, not that either. And then they finally get around to the place you want to go, and you say, yeah, that's what I want. How about fighting to see who can get out of bed to get the kids? Instead of saying, whose turn is it? And just hoping the other will roll out. Or pretending you're asleep when you know you should be up. Or how about Saturday morning being the first one out of bed to make uh, bacon and eggs and coffee for breakfast? For everybody in the house so that they wake up to that yummy, crisp smell of bacon. Let's fight for this. Let's fight to show each other honor. See how you can do. Well, you say, well, how long do I have to keep this up? How long do I have to do this? And as you can imagine, sustaining this kind of love would be very hard, especially under resistance. Especially if your efforts to love this person were opposed. And that's why the Apostle Paul gives us the fourth piece. Number four, love with perseverance. Love with perseverance. Look back down at verse 11. The Apostle Paul says, Not lagging behind in diligence. Do not lag behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Each one of these short little pithy statements says the same thing. Endure, persevere, keep it up. Start and never stop. Because see, it doesn't depend on anybody else. It depends on you and your willingness. And if you're opposed, that doesn't matter because you're the lover and you give. It's what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 13 when he talked about love by saying love bears all things, endures all things, and never fails. It never fails. It perseveres. And I think Paul adds this piece because it really would be tempting for us, wouldn't it? To become preoccupied with ourselves and begin to love like this when it's convenient, when it works for us, when it fits into our schedule to love like this. Or when there's something in it for us? No, instead he commands us, verse 11, to not lag behind in diligence. Literally, never hesitating. Never lazy. Diligent. 
Never falling short. Always serious. Always earnest. Always, here's the word, speedy. That's wrapped up in this word diligence. You're speedy. You do it quickly. Procrastinating love or convenient love is self-love. If you'll do it when you get around to it, that is not love. That is selfishness. Do you tell your family that you love them, but you can't find the time to spend with them? Do you promise other people that you're going to be there for them, but back out when something better comes up, some better offer? Do you promise to help somebody move and then don't show because somebody wanted to go surfing? This is hypocritical love. Paul says, no, don't lag behind in diligence, but I love the next phrase in verse 11. Be fervent in spirit, literally to boil, to seethe, to be on fire. And this goes back to those emotions. This goes back and refers to our passionate, emotional love and service to one another. Unquenching. The picture here is is a blazing fire that water can't extinguish. It's like Song of Solomon 8. Many waters cannot quench love. And the point is this, that there's nothing that can happen. There's nothing that that other person can do to you to stop this love from spreading. The more that the hot winds blow against it, the bigger it builds and burns. And in order to do this, you have to understand this is a supernatural kind of love. This isn't the kind of love that you can just pull up by your spiritual bootstraps. This is the kind of love that you have to depend on God because God is the divine lover at work in you to enable you to love this way. And that's why he adds the next phrase in verse 11, you do this serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. Your love to the people who oppose you or resist you is not really service to them, it's service to Christ. And if you have a problem loving and serving them, you have a problem loving and serving Christ because that's the divine resource from which this love flows. You'll love other people best when you love God the most. And so if you're struggling here, you need to cultivate your walk with God. You need to stir up your love towards Christ and your spiritual service. Now, if this is a divine love, then we can persevere in loving because verse 12 says we are to rejoice in hope. That the way that you carry out this love is a, is a joyful and rejoicing and, and hopeful love. It's a hope not in this person. Oh, the Bible never says hope in anything other than God. The Bible says when you're hoping, your hope is always in God because God never lets you down or disappoints you. The person you love might disappoint you. They might not reciprocate your love. They might not return it. But you understand you don't do it for them. You do it for God. And if you do it for God, you have hope because you will never be disappointed in obeying him. And you can have joy even under tribulation. If your hope is in God and nothing can shake that, then your love is is joyful. It's not this duty. It's not hard-hearted or half-hearted it's not okay that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about a love that rejoices to serve a love that rejoices to give and says my hope is in god first corinthians 13 again love hopes all things i have hope in who god is and my hope in god compels me to love you this way with joy if my love for you depended on you or your love for me depended on me, it'd be over. Because we're sinners. But if your hope is in God, you can love this way without flinching. Without flinching. I counseled a couple one time who came to me. They came not really for marriage counseling, they came for divorce counseling. Um, they, the words they said to me were, um, you're our last stop before divorce court. Uh, great, no pressure. Um, they said, uh, we can't seem to get along. We, we basically hate each other. I said, okay, well, why don't you tell me more? And as they began to work with this couple, they don't go here, by the way. Um, they're not in this room. But as I began to work with this couple, I began to realize something very interesting, uh, especially one time they went away on a vacation. I said, okay, remember, we're working on love. Here's what it's about. Here's what it looks like. When you go on your vacation, I want you to cultivate this. Use this as a great time. And, and, uh, but realize and remember this. That when you go on vacation, the pressure's off. So don't be deceived into thinking that just because the pressure's off, that you're doing exactly what you should. Use this time to make the most of it. And so they came back off of their vacation, and, the, and I said, well, so? How did it go? And they said, oh, it was the best time we've had. It was a great vacation. We loved it. We enjoyed ourselves. And they told me all the you know, things that they did and all the stuff that they did. No communicating, no loving, no serving, just gratifying self, really. And I said, well, then what? 
They said it was funny because we drove in our SUV into the, uh, into the driveway and we started unloading and it was World War III. And so I said, so what do you think that means? I'll never forget this. I said, well, so we need, to, we need to unclutter our life. We need to uh, make our lives a little bit more unruffled. We need to cut some things away, which may be good things, but that's not the main thing. I said, well, you know, we, we just need to take more vacations. I said, that's a wrong answer. The problem is not with your schedule. That's a symptom. Your problem is with your heart. Your heart. You need to cultivate this kind of love. You don't take away the problem and sort of pull the release valve and get everything out of your life. You're still left sinful and selfish. You need to love. You need to love. He says we should persevere in tribulation. Persevere in tribulation, verse 12. Literally, the pressures that come on you, you resist. You resist those pressures. When pressures try to squeeze you into the world's mold, you let your love flourish. It's in those times that true, unhypocritical love is not only tested, but is truly manifested. You want to know what your love is really like? Look at it under pressure. See and evaluate your love in the crucible. And if you're able to love a person when the pressure is on, unswerving, you are a biblical lover. If at the first sign of pressure you, you bail out, that is not unhypocritical love. That is self-love. This is a love that never quits. This is a love like a muscle under strain that builds and builds because of the weight. And you say, how do you get this kind of strength? By now, you're probably scratching your head saying, okay, I need this. I want this in my life. And that's the next piece of the puzzle, verse 12. Be devoted or persistent to prayer. I love that. Be devoted or persistent to prayer. This speaks of the divine enablement whereby you access the ability to love like this. You can't love like this, beloved. You cannot love like this unless the Spirit of God works in your life to manifest it in you. And so if you are not dependent on Him, it's over. It's over. You have to depend on God for strength. And this, by this, I think the language here implies more than just, than just preemptive praying. You know what that is? You're praying before they strike. That's preemptive praying. That, that, that's certainly healthy and good. But we're even talking about continually as you're being opposed, as you're under pressure, you're praying. That doesn't mean in the morning you check off your prayer list and then you go through the day, sort of like taking a puff of breath in the morning and then holding your breath the rest of the day. No, with, with God, you're breathing out and in a communication of prayer. It's a life. And you're saying, maybe as this person is coming at me, and I, let's say I have a hard time with this person. Already in my mind, instinctive number one is to start praying. Pray right now. God, give me the strength to love them. Give me the grace I need to pour out myself for and love them at this very moment. I need you now. And so this is... This is this is really good love. This is unhypocritical love. It's a love that's pure, it's passionate, it prefers others, it perseveres. And number five, you are to love with partnership. You're to love all these ways. And number five, love with partnership. Look back down at verse 13. The apostle says, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Now, the idea of partnership comes from this, this word contributing in verse 13. It's the word you know, koinonia. It means fellowship. It means fellowship with their needs. It means take on and own and partner with their needs. If they've got a need, you've got a need. If they're facing something, it means you're facing something because guess what? You're in the body. You're in the body of Christ. And so you come along and partner with their needs. The needs of the saints. These are whatever the saints need. Whatever they need, you're to partner with, to fellowship with their needs. Remember the words of 1 John 3, where he says, Little children, let us not love in word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. These words follow that statement of unhypocrisy. He says, We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Implied? It doesn't. Little children, let us not love, here it is, with word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. And this is, this is the phrase that we are to do. This is the partnership we are to have. It extends beyond the four walls of this church. It extends even 
to strangers, even to strangers. That's what the next phrase in verse 13 is, practicing hospitality. If you have a little marginal note on the side, it probably says something like loving strangers. That's literally what the word hospitality means. You think, well, I'm hospitable. Um, I, I, I have parties at my house and I make cookies. I'm a pretty decent cook. When you think of hospitality, the first person to come into your mind should not be Martha Stewart. That is not hospitality. Hospitality means to love, love, phileo, strangers. To have affection for people you don't know. And if you're having a hard time with people that you do know and love, this one's out of there. But you start even loving these kinds of people. And you say, well, loving strangers, what, what does that mean? In that culture, uh, inns and taverns were were closed many times uh, to travelers. There was a lot of immorality and drunkenness in the inns. And if, if you came to a city, you couldn't just uh, you know, dial up, uh, you know, um, what's the site, Expedia or, or you know, uh, Travelocity or something like that and pick your hotel and move in without you know, your electronic cards. You, you couldn't do that. That wasn't available to you. And in a world where persecution was heavy, you couldn't, you couldn't come and, and just go anywhere because you would be attacked for your faith. So you had to find sort of this hub, this little network of Christians. That's what they did in those days. They established a network that if you came into town and you were a believer and you were traveling, you could find safe haven and rest here. You could find somebody who would, would come in and, and who would minister to you and fellowship with you and, and enjoy your company. This, this was really how early church missions was successful. As people came from place to place to place to place, they would meet believers. And guess what? If you're hosting family and you're taking somebody in who professes to be a believer, what if they're not? Or what if they're a young believer and they really like your jewelry? Or they eat all your food? Or they stay longer than they planned? Longer than the Christmas holiday? Let's say that they're there for a long time because God opens up a door for ministry. The the, the idea here is that you love that. You purposefully inconvenience yourself to meet their needs. We have a shepherd's conference coming up. Instant application. We have men coming from all over the world to come here to go be part of the the shepherd's conference over in Sun Valley in March. Maybe some of you would be interested in opening your homes. But whatever it is, strangers, people who know and profess to love the Lord Jesus Christ, you are to open your home to and to be spent for. And I love, I love the word he uses here, practicing hospitality. It, it's such a strong word. You, you, you can't possibly feel the weight of this in the English. It means to persecute their needs. I love that. You persecute their needs. If they have a need, you drive it away. You persecute it. That's the, that's the strength of the language here. You're coming after their needs to be done with it, to put an end to it, to drive it away. Every other place in the Bible it's translated persecute. That's what it means. When you see a person who's a stranger or a person in this body who has a need, you own it, and because you own it, you attack it, and you be done with it. That's what it means. By now, you see in the passage that love has to be a mindset that you cultivate. Love has to be an attitude that you put on, a way of thinking that affects your course of living, and that's why Paul adds number six, love with perspective. You have to love with perspective. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Hmm. Bless. What is that? It means to call down God's blessings upon them, to invoke the favor of God to be with them, whereas cursing is to call down punishment and retribution and judgment. And here you see love at work because if love genuinely desires the best for that person, there is a desire to see that love met with their best interests. And the best interest that could possibly be manifested are those which come from the divine throne itself, those of God. And so if there are people in your life who persecute you, if there are unbelievers in your life, you're to pray for them. And what's the, what's the greatest possible blessing that God could bestow on them? What is it? Salvation, that's right. Repentance, obedience, a new life in Christ, transformation, the same transformation that was given to you. How inconceivable it is a person who's been rescued from condemnation would be so quick to cast it down on somebody else. Love doesn't do that. Love exhausts grace. Remember Luke 9? 
John and, and James, the brothers, were, were going along with Jesus and they were trying to find entrance into a city. And in Luke 9, it says that they did not receive them. They didn't want them. They said, hey, next city, we don't want your kind here. I, uh, James and John both said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Jesus says to them, you don't even know what kind of spirit you're of. And I love his response and his reaction. He says, the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. To save them. That's what it's about. We are here to save, to be a conduit of the grace of God through the gospel, to bring men and women to repentance. And if you retaliate to their persecution, you don't show them love. You model what they do, and that's hate. And your gospel loses its, its appeal. Who wants to believe a gospel of peace when the people who possess it are hateful? You have to have this perspective. Turn over a couple chapters to chapter 9 of Romans. Romans chapter 9. I want to show you an example from the Apostle Paul in our context here of what this kind of love looks like. He embodies it himself. Chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ, which he has to say because the next statement is so overwhelming. He says, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why? Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites. Did you see what he said? I have such grief in my heart over their sin, the people who are trying to kill me, that I wish somehow I could give up my salvation for them. Now I love you, but I don't love you that much. I don't know anybody who would be willing to give up their salvation for the sake of a God-hating persecutor to be saved. That you would accept eternal hell forever if perhaps somehow it might lead to your persecutor's repentance. Do you love like this? Can you say, yeah, that's me. I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth in Christ Jesus, my conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit, that you have that kind of love for people who hate you. This is Christ's love. This is the love that was poured out on the cross. This is deep and profound love. It's amazing. It's amazing love and it's amazing perspective. Back to chapter 12. Another piece of this perspective is the summons in verse 15 to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is a call for empathy to identify with and understand each other's situations and your feelings and your motives. This means that as you love someone, you put his or her interests and their feelings and and the, the issues and the ups and downs of life as your most important priority. You're always looking out for their emotional well-being. It's an issue of perspective, of seeing life through their eyes. You say, what does that look like? It looks like this. Ladies, you've had a great day. You're whistling when your husband comes home. And he comes in the door and you're in the other room and you hear this big slam and a growl. You think, oh, what's that? He's home. Must have been a bad day at the office. And the two of you meet. Now, wives, you shouldn't say, hey, buck up. I'm having a great day. Can you not ruin it, please? That's not what you do. What you do is set aside whatever you're working on and and come alongside and say, are you okay? You had a tough day? Sit down and tell me about it. Nothing you do, you're doing at that moment is more important than to rejoice or to weep with that person when they're weeping. Okay, now guys, you had a bad day and your wife is whistling when you walk through the door and whistling annoys you because you were around, around loud noises all the day and your cell phone is ringing and her whistle sounds like your cell phone and you just wanted to cut it out. And kids, go to your room. No. What you do in spite of the fact that you had a horrible day, maybe the worst day you've ever had in your life, you come alongside your wife and say, tell me about your day. Looks like you had a great day. And I want to rejoice with you. That's true love. That's biblical love. It's 
identifying with your emotions and saying, this is the emotion I'm seeing. I'm going to have that emotion too. You say, what if I don't feel that emotion? Should I fake it? No, you should pray to God for unhypocritical love so that you can love that person in the ups and downs of life. To have this perspective requires that you have even the next element in verse 16, that you be of the same mind toward one another. This is the mindset you cultivate. You have the same mind towards one another. Literally, you think the same thing. You're like-minded. This is an issue of perspective because you put on the common mindset towards them. This is the idea of unity. This is the idea of oneness. This is the idea we're pursuing in our home and in our church. Unity and oneness. We think the same. And you say, well, what does that mean? Look at the next two phrases, verse 16. Do not be haughty in mind. Don't think high things about yourself literally. Don't think about all of your accomplishments, all of your attainments, all the things that you think you deserve. Instead, associate with the lowly. What this means means is bring yourself to a place with no matter who they are or what they're going through, that you're coming under them to undergird them and think with them and identify with them and support them in whatever they need. That's the idea. You don't, you don't walk around in a church. and You can understand how, couldn't you? This would be a temptation in the church. If you've got people in the church who, are, who have been blessed and who are wealthy and they're meeting the needs of the people who are poor and those poor people somehow become, in a sense, dependent on those gifts and this person isn't an uh, other's lover, he's a self-lover and he wants to use now his money to manipulate that person to exalt himself, you can see how that would be a temptation in the body. Or, or you've got your group of friends and there's a new visitor who comes in or a person who's just new to our church and, and, and they can't seem to break in and penetrate your Sunday school class or they can't break in to penetrate your clique because of the favoritism? No. He says, don't have such high-minded thoughts of yourself. Don't be conceited, literally. Associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Don't think you're something when you're nothing. The joy is, though, you're not going to have to worry about this if you're serving in the body. You're not going to have to worry about being served. If the body is functioning in a healthy way and your commitment is to serve other people and their commitment is to serve you, then everybody is served and everybody's needs are met because the body works through the enablement that God gives it through Christ. And so you find this mutual interdependence in the body where both members are working to be others-minded and then both people are therefore served. I saw a picture one time uh, that somebody uh, had painted. Maybe you've seen it, I don't know. It's a picture of heaven and it's a picture of hell. And, and the picture's cut down the middle. In the hell picture, there are people, they're all sitting around a beautifully arrayed uh, a banquet table with all the most luxurious foods you could ever find. And the table was as long, it panned out into the, into the horizon of, of the table. It was so long. And everybody was seated by it. They had, you know, kerchiefs around their neck. The only thing was, in their hands were spoons that were too long. They were longer than their arms. And so as every person dipped in to eat and partake of the food, they couldn't get the spoon around to their mouth. And, and the handle of the spoon was at the end, so you couldn't just choke up the spoon and then serve yourself. But what they did is, is, is hell, what was hell to them and what the ar- artist tried to portray is they were all trying to serve themselves forever. And it was hell because they couldn't partake of the joy and the wonder and the banquets that were available. And then you pan over to the heaven picture. Same scene. Same table. Same scenario. All the people had spoons and their hands were linked to the handle of the spoon. But you know what the difference was? They were all serving each other. That's what the body is. It's about serving each other. It's not about trying to serve yourself. And if everybody has a other's servant mindset, everybody gets served. And the true intent of what God wants for this church will be manifest. That's what we mean. And sometimes, though, the body's not always going to function this way, and this kind of support is not always going to come, not only from within, but from without. And that's why Paul adds the final piece to this portrait of love. Number seven, love with pain. Love with pain. Now, Paul's been hammering this idea already through the passage. You know it well. And he gives us some of the most, in these verses, the most helpful instruction on how to deal with people, unbelievers in this case, 
who cause us pain. People who hate Christ, our love is to extend even to them. And this is, if nothing else, a twist of the knife that's already been stabbed in our heart. Verse 17. Never, the word in the Greek is ever, pay back evil for evil to anyone. Literally never retaliate. And the people that attack you never fight back. Never retaliate. The point is not pacifism here or self-defense. The Bible talks about that. But what we're talking about here is you would rather be insulted and offended and attacked by a person before you would retaliate in vengeance. That's the idea. Love does not retaliate when wronged. As it says in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. We're not to retaliate them. But instead, verse 17 says, we are to respect what is right in the sight of all men. All men as believers and unbelievers alike. And I'll show you how this fits into the context of unbelievers here. The word here in verse 17 means literally to take thought for or to take into consideration what is right or what is honorable in the sight of men. Now this word right is such an interesting word. It means beautiful or noble, but the best way to translate it, and in this context, it means unobjectionable. Unobjectionable. That means that you are to take thought of and plan to make sure that unbelievers do not object to your life. That's what that means. That they don't find any reason or any flaw in your life to set aside or to reject the gospel because of something they find. In other words, let me, let me put it to you this way. A lot of times in the church we have, because we're free in Christ, liberties that we can enjoy. Things that we can do, that we can do. Things that we can participate in. Things that might not be the best though. Things that may be lawful but may not be, what? Profitable. And what he's saying here is these liberties that we have in our life, we need to be willing, if we love them, to set aside those things that make them object to our faith, which we otherwise could do. You could do certain things, but if a non-believer looks at your life and your liberty and says, oh, and finds some sort of cause to reject the gospel, you violated the command to love. Love is saying, you know what, I don't need that liberty. I can set that aside. What's more important to me is not that I can indulge in my liberty, but that you can be saved. That's what he means here. The same thing's true in the church, because he says all men. What about, what about believers? There's times in the body of Christ, isn't there, where we have these freedoms and a certain brother may not be able to handle your freedom. And so you have two choices. You can say, hey, buck up, you know, get, out, get rid of your weak conscience. You know, why don't you just realize that I'm free in Christ to do this and back off? What kind of witness is that? Or we can say, you know what, if that offends you, like Paul says, if meat offends you, I'll never eat meat again, ever. I don't have to have meat. The issue is to not allow my freedoms to become an opportunity for the flesh, Galatians 5 says, but through love to serve one another. You know why you're given liberties, beloved? To set them aside for the sake of drawing your other brothers and sisters out of bondage. That is why you are given liberty. Not to indulge them, but to lead other people out of them. We can say more about that, Galatians 5. What kind of testimony is it when a non-believer looks into the church and sees a bunch of people forgetting about each other, stepping over each other to indulge themselves? What kind of witness is that? Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. By what? By your love for one another. This may be painful. You may really want that liberty. But you have to set it aside. And this painful context in which love is shown means that love is hard work and your love is not always going to be returned. That's why Paul adds verse 18. Look at it. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Be at peace with all men, if possible. Literally, if it's within your power or if it's within your ability, be at peace with all men. And this means that restoration may not always be possible. But if it's not happening, it better not be your fault. It better not be because you are holding on to some grudge or some bitterness that's keeping you from harmony. You are with all of your might and all of your power and all of your diligence to pursue harmony with all men. All men. Believers and unbelievers alike. That's what he says. 
We're to be striving for this. And if we're not at peace with one another in the body, what does that tell the world? That the gospel of peace has absolutely no effect. It is impotent in the life of the church if we are fighting. Is there anybody that you come in Sunday morning and you look across the church at and say, and you growl in your heart at? Or you begin to belittle? Or think thoughts in your mind about, oh, if I only could say to them this, I would. What about an unbeliever? Chew unbelievers out? Go to a restaurant, they don't get your order right, you chew them out? What does it say? What does it say? Verse 19, unhypocritical love, instead does this. Never, again, ever, take your own revenge. Never revenge yourself, but leave room for the wrath of God. You can't retaliate even if it seems justified. Even if you feel like, I was right. I deserve to have this. You are never, ever to avenge yourself. And what the apostle does here is he quotes two Old Testament texts, Deuteronomy 32 and Proverbs 25, and says this, remember this, God, wrath will pour. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You know how it reads in the original? Mine is the vengeance. That's how it reads. God says, mine. Vengeance, mine, not yours. He does not give us the prerogative to retaliate or to show vengeance ever. And if you hold a grudge or you retaliate against somebody, you doubt the judge. If you hold a grudge, you doubt the judge and his ability to judge equitably and fairly when he comes. And he will come. And guess what? The sin that's against you is not primarily against you. You know what it is? It's against the Lord. You remember what Paul was on the Damascus Road and what the Lord said to him when he came to him? And Paul was going to persecute Christians? Remember what the Lord said? Saul, why do you persecute me? Why are you attacking me? The Lord who's most offended and most holy will in fairness one day inequitably judge those who've offended his holiness. And he does not give that judgment to you or to me. We are to not repay them, says the Lord. And the word for repay, he says, I will really repay. Vengeance, mine is the vengeance, and one day I will really repay repay verse 20 what should you do instead if your enemy is hungry what feed him and if he is thirsty give him a drink isn't that amazing if your enemy is in need too bad that's his problem no if your enemy literally your hostile enemy If he's hungry, you feed him. You give him what he needs. If he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. Say, why? Look at the rest of the verse. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. And you think, what does that mean? A lot of people have taken this to mean, see, if you're kind... You kill him with kindness. It's not what he's saying. You can't get to the end of all those verses on love and not retaliating and think, well, God will stick it to him in the end. That's not what that means. This is what it means. This is a word picture that Israel carried out from Egypt with them. And literally what would happen in these days, if a person wanted to show that by, his, by your kindness he was shamed and he was remorseful, and he was contrite. And your love for him, in spite of his opposition, proved that you have something that he doesn't have, and he was broken over that, he would take a bowl, and he'd fill it with hot coals from the altar, and he'd put it on his head, and he'd just sit there where everybody could see him. And what that meant was that he was ashamed of his behavior, he was contrite of heart, and he had, watch this, a change or tenderness or warmth of mind. What is that in the Bible? A change of mind is repentance. If you are kind to your enemy, the goal of your kindness is that God, through your unhypocritical, unfeigned love, would bring him to his knees and to the Savior. This is profound. No wonder he says in verse 21, this is how you do not become 
vanquished, literally, or overcome with evil. Don't let evil come on you and corrode you and and bring you down. Instead, you, by the Spirit of God, through loving them, overcome evil with good. Martin Luther said, Men commonly regard as the victor the one who has the last word and who can deal the last blow. Isn't that true? Whereas, a matter of fact, he who is the last to inflict pain is the one who is worse off. For the evil remains with him while the other is done with it. Let it be said of you and let it be said of Calvary Bible Church that we loved and that we loved for real. Let's pray. Father, these are penetrating and and strong and yet awesome words. These are words that put our hand over our mouth. We dare not speak and we dare not use the phrase, I love you flippantly again. I pray that you will burden our hearts and I pray that you will elevate the standard of love in our minds so that with a true sense of the filling of your spirit, we love unhypocritically without false appearance. Lord, I pray for anyone here that doesn't understand or know this love because they don't know and cherish the Savior, that you would bring them to their knees and to bring them to repentance. And the people who are like that in our lives, that you would use us to show them love so that they might see the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and might be drawn and compelled and wooed to the Savior. We beg you for that. And we pray in that great and matchless name. Amen.